This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Again, tonight's passage is Luke 1, 11 through 38. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, for, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him with their spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of, their, of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and he realized that he had seen a vision of the temple. And they kept taking signs to him and, and remained mute. And when the time of the service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, and this is the sixth month with her who 
who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, well, tonight we start Advent, and um, I wanna, I've got a lot that I'm going to try to cover, and I promise this won't be a long sermon, but there's a lot of ground to cover because uh, we're starting a series in Luke tonight. We're starting our Advent uh, studies in Luke, so we're going to talk a little bit about what Advent is, and then we're just going to talk about this passage. So uh, let me just start by explaining what Advent is, if you, if you aren't familiar. Um, of all the Christmas, uh, of all the Christian traditions, I think that Christmas is probably the one that's most widely celebrated, at least loosely, by the wild, wider world. Um, my first Christmas when I was a Christian was when I was 19, and I was really caught off guard by how much significance had been hiding from me in plain sight. Of course, I knew that Christians uh, celebrated Christmas as the coming of, of Christ, the birth of Christ. But then, that year, I started to understand that that birth was really a seismic shift in redemptive history. I knew that religious people were glad that Jesus was born, but now I understood that the birth was this apocalypse. It was a cosmos-altering intrusion of God. And then, when I began working in churches, uh, particularly when I started working in worship and liturgy, I came to understand that Advent... Uh, is not just the countdown to Christmas, but that it's really this distinct uh, Christian tradition that connects to Christmas, but it also stands alone. Advent comes from the Latin word meaning coming or arrival, and it's also a cognate for the word for wind. And when we celebrate Advent, we're looking forward to Christmas, but we're also embodying the past and the present waiting on Christ. We're remembering what it was like for those who anticipated the first coming of the Messiah who we read about tonight, the first Advent. And then we're living in our present Advent, the coming of Christmas this year, as we relish that Christ has come to fulfill his role as the Messiah, but we also groan with fear. And then we're also longing for him to complete his redemption with his second Advent. The British poet Malcolm Gweet calls this the triple focus of Advent. Gweet comments about how our prayers focused especially on the first Advent, Christ's birth in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And sometimes we focus on the second Advent, though rarely. But in between is a third Advent, the anticipation of and the angst of waiting for Christmas this year while we also wait for the second coming. So Gweet collected a, an anthology of Advent poems for the purpose of balancing this triple focus of Advent. Advent, in his mind, is a season of feasting on quiet, on the darkness of winter, on contemplation, while fasting from the dizziness of the world that distracts us from the advents of Christ. Indeed, this is not at all 
what our holiday parties or our decorations communicate. Christmas is actually what our our decorations and our parties are looking to. We jump right into the, the celebration because Christmas is a feast. But Advent is in fact the quiet before the wind blows through with force. And Fleming Rutledge makes a similar point by noting how these days we now sing Christmas songs all through Advent. When there used to be Advent songs that were about anticipation instead of jumping right to the arrival. It seems like Advent and Christmas, to me, they almost mirror the coming of John the Baptist and then the birth of Christ, which is why I wanted to preach on those stories together. John is this long, long awaited gift to Elizabeth who wanted to give birth but couldn't. John won't partake of wine or beer. John was baptizing ahead of Jesus. He was fasting in the wilderness. He was a man of quirky and quiet piety. And Advent is an embodiment of the simmering, dark anticipation that John's life is for Jesus. And John is just continuing a long thread of trembling anticipation all throughout Israel's history. Luke reminds us in our passage tonight in verses 27 and in verse 32 that Christ comes from the line of David. David was a hero turned coward, a man of righteousness turned predator. And we're quite familiar with David here because we've been studying him through the fall. And so because of that, we understand what it was like to know that you have an unsatisfying king. So we can feel that anticipation just like Israel for a better king. And Luke makes other subtle references to remind us that Christ is that long-anticipated Messiah. He mentions three times in just seven verses that Mary's a virgin, which harkens back to Isaiah. It's what's called an apocalyptic echo. Apocalyptic echo is just an elaborate way of saying God's breaking through time and space. And Isaiah sounds the alarm and Luke reverberates it. He's using references from the past to reinforce this present reality. The prophet Isaiah, he wrote about how Israel should anticipate their rescuer coming as a surprise from the womb of a young woman. Luke is drawing lines across Israel's history, saying that this is that king. He's the king that David was not. He's the God who breaks through in time and space that Isaiah told us to watch for and await. Luke goes even further back from Isaiah and David, too. He references Jacob, whose name became Israel. And from Jacob descended the 12 tribes of Israel. And from Jacob, through the tribes, we get the house of David. And then we get through to the words of Isaiah. Now the king, the rescuer, who's going to wipe away tears and quell fears is imminent. So Advent is the quiet night. Before the wind comes rolling down the mountain and will rush soon through the valley. John's birth and life are the final moments of the first dark advent. The waiting of the Messiah. Jacob's ancestors, Jacob's descendants in Israel, the citizens of David's kingdom, and the hearers of Isaiah's message are all waiting for something. And so is John's and Jesus' family. And just before Jesus comes, 
arrives John the Baptist. John's birth and life are the final scenes of the first advent. And he's born to this barren mother. And his life is marked by wilderness and fasting and purity. Jesus is Christmas. Jesus is a surprise to Mary. He's going to encourage his disciples to feast and be glad with wine. He's a burst of joy after a season of long, long nights. Jesus and John's lives share a lot of parallels in addition to having these contrasts. And Luke writes in such a way as to highlight these things, which is one I want to get into tonight. I got this insight from a, from a scholar named Joel, Joel Green, who got it from a German scholar. If you look at Luke 11 through 38, which is our passage tonight, there are a bunch of parallels. In verse 12, it says Zechariah was, tw- was troubled. In verse 28, it says Mary was troubled. In verse 13, it says the angel said to Zechariah. In verse 30, it says the angel said to Mary. In verse 13, it says, do not be afraid. In verse 30, it says, do not be afraid. In verse 13, it says that Elizabeth will bear you a son. In verse 31, it says, you will bear a son to Mary. In verse 13, it says, and you will name him. And in verse 31, it says, and you will name him. In verse 15, it says, he will be great. In verse 32, it says, he will be great. Verse 18, it says that uh, Zachariah said to the angel. In verse 34, it says, Mary said to the angel. In verse 19, it says, and replying, the angel said to him. In verse 35, and, then re- and replying, the angel said to her. So Luke wants you to read these stories together. So if we think that John is a representation of Advent and Christ's fulfillment is Christmas, then I see three things that are consistent in the waiting of Christ's first coming, the present age of waiting that we're living in, and the second coming of Christ into our fragile but ever-redeemable world. And those three things are that, one, we are troubled and afraid as we wait. Two, we don't need to fear. And three, he will be great. So that's how I want to look at this passage. So first, we're troubled. I think it's fair to say that we're troubled, that we live in fear. Our situation is not the same as Zechariah and Mary. Their fear comes from the presence of the angel and the revelation that God is with them. Theirs is a righteous fear and awe and terror at seeing an angel and hearing from God through the angel. But what our fear and their fear has in common is this, is this sense that God is often obscured from us. They're surprised to see God break through by way of an angel's visit. And we long for that breakthrough and would be equally surprised because of our expectations. Acknowledging that sense of silence, that obscuring of God's presence is a big part of Advent. If you've been reading the Fleming Rutledge book with this ever-growing Advent reading group at Salem, you may have caught her litany of quotes on this idea. She quoted Blaise Pascal and W.H. Auden, and I think perhaps the most helpful one for here is this reference that she pulls from C.S. Lewis, who says, Where is God when you're happy and turn to him with gratitude and praise? You will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slamming in your face. 
and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. We live in those spaces and and without much reprieve. The fear in us and the fear in Mary and Zechariah all comes from the same place, which is that we don't expect God to break through into our world. For Mary and Zechariah, they're afraid because God does break through in the message of this angel. For us, we live as if he will not break through the thin veil and show us the redemption of his kingdom. All humans, ancient and modern, expect to go on without the intervention of God. So we're full of righteous fear if we see it, but we're troubled because of the small faith that we have when we don't see it, which is most of the time. The human creature, while strong and image-bearing, is also troubled. Our consciousness, which causes us to rise above the beasts, also burdens us. (laughs) Deeply. (laughs) Because we're conscious of our frailty. We're aware that we're frail. We know that we're strong, that we're image-bearing, but we also know that we're mortal and we're vulnerable, and that scares us. I read an article recently entitled, Astrology in the Age of Uncertainty. Apparently, astrology is growing in popularity and authority in people's lives today. The article documented the reemergence of astrology, and I was surprised that it was growing and gaining acceptance in what seemed to be increasingly science and data-driven times. As an experiment, I listened to an astrology podcast for my astrological sign. And in a two-minute span, I heard the word may four times. You may experience. I heard the word might twice. And I heard the word could all in two minutes. That didn't sound like certainty to me. I posted my favorite quote from the article on Instagram. I'm going to read it for you. It's about a professional astrologer. Kelly's schedule is typical for a millennial astrologer. She writes books on Zodiac-themed cocktails, does events at the private club The Soho House, offers individual chart readings, $175 an hour, hosts a podcast, stars like us, makes memes, manages a virtual coven called The Constellation Club, with membership levels that cost from $5 to $200, and has worked as a consultant for the astrology app Sanctuary. She also writes an advice column for Cosmopolitan and hosts an occasional Cosmo video series in which she guesses celebrity signs based on their answers to 12 questions. The article's phrase, Age of Uncertainty, feels like an apt description of our time and place. But I find it surprising that people connect to astrology for providing certainty, especially when it relies on those uncertain words like may and might. And yet Pew reports that 30% of millennials believe in astrology. The thesis of the article was that astrology provides an objective framework outside yourself for understanding an extremely uncertain world. When you look at astrology as a framework, that makes sense to me. A framework provides parameters and rules. In a world that's confusing and often untrustworthy, a framework provides a sense of stability. 
I do not believe in astrology, but I do believe that people are thirsty for stability, for understanding their significance. People need stability. There was a recent op-ed in the New York Times titled, Grifters Ruled the 2010s. A grifter is basically a con person, if you don't know that word. The second sentence of the piece read like this. These were the years, the 2010s, when our collective sense of objective reality totally fell apart. Under the sway of a new breed of swindler, huckster, influencer, troll, and hacker. This decade saw a lot of powerful people exposed as frauds. Facebook lost its innocence as a community and was revealed to be a gameable system for information manipulation. Body cameras exposed to us what has likely been decades of police brutality on people of color. Companies like WeWork and Theranos were allowed to raise millions of dollars for what were really fake companies with almost no product or governance. And of course we learned how many notable men were secret predators. That's a lot of fear and uncertainty for the human to carry around. It's strange to me that angels are often portrayed as these baby-faced creatures with songbird wings. In scripture, angels are described as those shouting with exuberance at the throne of God. They seem rowdy. They're also guardians who can detect evil and harass it on behalf of God. In Job, an angelic spirit is described as making a man's hair stand on end. The gospel stories of humans encountering angels have the angels speaking first. And each of them they say, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Our instability, the, pl- the proliferation of, of uh, grifters, our impulse towards astrology or other frameworks, it makes me jealous of Mary and Zachariah. I want to be visited by an angel. I want a real angel full of heavenly authority, power, and strength to put the fear of God in me and reset my worldview. I want my anxious troubles to be replaced by a righteous fear. Instead of being troubled that our political system is corroding or my children being safe or my comfort being secure, I want to face the awesome powers of heaven. But I don't need to be jealous of Mary and Zechariah. Just as the Lord told them, do not fear. He tells me the same through Christ. When I read the angel saying, do not fear, he feels like a comfort. But that's not how I hear it in my own life. This, this fall, I've been, I've been very anxious. It's been a new level of troubling feelings for me. I had less margin than ever, and I was more anxious about letting people down than I've ever been. And it was hard for me to ask for help, and I was really scared that I couldn't handle the challenges of pastoring and the inevitability that I'm going to disappoint people. And when I reflected on this anxiety, I tried to tell myself, do not fear. 
But it sounded like a command instead of a soothing comfort. My mind heard, you shouldn't fear. Don't fear. Don't you believe? Shouldn't you not be afraid? It felt like taunts or measures of faith. And what is that? Why do we give each other advice like, you shouldn't be afraid? That's not how God talks to his people about their troubles. But it is how the voice in my head talks to me. When the angel says to Mary and Zechariah, do not fear, the angel is trying to calm them down before they panic. And we know this is the angel's tone because it is consistent with God's tone throughout history. Through Moses, he told Israel, do not be afraid. Just be still and I will fight for you. God gave David the song to sing that claimed, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, be still and know that I am God. God told his people through Isaiah, do not fear for I will be with you. God tells his troubled and fear-filled children through Moses, through David, through Isaiah, to not be troubled and instead be still because he will be right there in their midst. We know these angels are not telling them, you shouldn't be afraid. In fact, in fact, it's sort of implied that God and the angels expect humans to panic. Because before they even get the chance, the angel says, don't be afraid. We will be anxious. We will be afraid. So God preempts that by saying, be still. Do not be afraid, little one. Are you panicky and anxious and afraid? God would not offer these comforts if he did not expect you to be full of fear, to have that sad struggle of the human condition. So why is it that the voice in my head in times of fear says, you shouldn't be afraid, instead of hearing, don't be afraid, because I'm here with you? I think it's because darkness, evil, and my own flesh try to obscure the presence of God for me. His spirit is swirling around me, but I forget. And I'm so afraid. And thankfully, the gospel tells me that Jesus didn't come to tell me, you shouldn't be afraid. He came to say, do not be afraid. I am with you. And we know from the angel's announcement that he will be great. The angel doesn't tell Zachariah or Mary when he comes you will be great. The angel says he will be great. Because I cannot be great. And that's not bad news. It's good news. Deep down, I want to be great. I want to be dependable for people. I want to be liked, but I sabotage those things in subtle and explicit ways. I shoot my mouth off and I put my hope in people liking me or liking my ideas. The freedom of Christ's coming is that I can admit I will not be great. And I'll tell you an embarrassing story about this. 
This fall, I texted one of the young guys in our church. Um, a text that was meant for Aaron that went something like, after you finish working on your computer, come snuggle with me and we'll watch TV. And he wrote back and said, I can't right now. <laughs> and, and only then did I learn that I had sent that text to him. So I actually was a little annoyed because she didn't respond for like 20 minutes. And we were in the same house. So that one stung. But it's certainly not as bad as when I'm impatient with my children or stubborn to repent to friends for hurting their feelings. I'm full of silly mistakes, but also I'm full of trouble and sin. When I pause to really pull back the tarp over my dark and toxic heart, I am anxious and troubled by what I see. We can dull that reality with rationalizations, with workaholism, with alcohol, with astrology, the Enneagram, online shopping, Instagram, TV. But those are just numbing agents. Eventually, the trouble of our hearts will overcome the numbness, and we will become overcome by our troubles. And the holidays will especially bring this out in a lot of us. And that's when we can remember that the God who made us did not come to condemn us by saying, stop being troubled, stop being afraid, but instead came as a baby, a delicate little babe who grew to a man to say to us, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, do not be afraid, for I am with you, my body and my spirit are given to you.